Well, we're starting a new series today, and the series is called Asking for a Friend. And, uh, and I know there's a couple ways to take the phrase asking for a friend, but I think you'll see in just a minute that this is a series about asking questions, asking questions of God and of each other about God. Now, when my kids were little, when they were small, it seemed like as soon as they could speak, they were forming questions. They were asking lots and lots of questions. They would ask, are we there yet? Why is your belly so smushy? What are we going to do tomorrow? That is the question I hear most often in my household. Moses, literally every night when he goes to sleep, what are we going to do tomorrow? Same thing we did today, buddy. <laughs> uh, but as they grew older, the questions that they were asking slowed down. And at some point, they, they stopped altogether. Maybe your kids haven't gotten to that point yet. Maybe you're looking forward to that point. But trust me, the questions do stop. And I realized at some point that if I wanted to keep talking to my kids, if I wanted to keep having conversations with them, I was going to be the one asking the questions. What are you excited about these days? Is there anything going on in your sister's life that I should know about? <laughs> Do you want to go for a drive? What are you reading? Even asking questions, though, those questions don't necessarily ensure there will be a conversation. What are you excited about these days? I don't know. Is there anything going on in your sister's life I should know about? No. Do you want to go for a drive? Where? Anywhere. No. What are you reading? A book. Questions don't necessarily mean that there will be conversations, but they do help. A few years ago, someone gave us a book <clears throat> called Well Known. It's a little spiral-bound deal like this, and, uh, and it's just full of questions. And it starts off pretty mild. There are level one questions, and there are things like, uh, it's called surface talk. What was your most memorable haircut? You know, basic things. But it goes all the way to, to level five questions like, uh, whose opinion about you matters the most, you know? And so they get deeper and deeper, and this has become really handy in our household. Uh, we use it around the dinner table at our house when we need a little help getting the conversation moving. On a trip last year, Jennifer and I even wrote our own version of, of the well-known book called 100 Questions and Car Conversation Starters for Your Kids, because we have so much uh, such a hard time getting uh, our kids to talk sometimes. And at Thanksgiving, we went around the room and we asked each family member to pick a number between 1 and 100, and whatever number they picked, they had to answer that corresponding question. So, Vic, do you want to play? Okay. Pick a number between 1 and 100. 37. 37. Okay. Let's see. What are you proud of yourself for, Vic? Oh, you should be proud of that. You should definitely be proud of that. Good answer. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the family member had to answer the question like that. It was fun. It was a little awkward, to be honest. I mean, we asked, asked and answered some pretty vulnerable questions. It was a smidge vulnerable, but it was really good. 
For most of us, our curiosity, though, never came back after adolescence. We stopped asking questions, even important questions. We just accepted that things are as they are. And those things that didn't seem to make sense, they were just not going to make sense. And so we just stopped asking questions. And we particularly stopped asking the question, why or how? So for a few weeks at Pillar this summer, we're going to ask and answer questions just like curious kids. We're going to tackle a tough question each week. And we're going to do our best to answer the question as clearly as we can from God's perspective, from God's word. And since we know, the, uh, the, I know that most of you know the answers to all the questions we might talk about, we'll assume that you're asking for a friend, hence the title of the series. And keeping with the theme, I got a number on the screen, and I'd encourage you, if you have any questions, to text those questions in as we talk. And if we have time at the end of the service, we'll address the questions that you text in. So, so if, uh, if you have questions, just send them to the number on that screen and we'll do our best uh, to answer them. So the question we're going to tackle today is one of the most common questions that I've been asked as a pastor. Now, I was thinking about how long I'd been a pastor today and it struck me for the first time. I realized that I've been a pastor for 20 years, which I know I look very young, so it seems in- incredible. Um, but I've been a pastor for 20 years. I was ordained in 1999, less than a year after I graduated from high school, which was uh, kind of crazy now that I think about it. I would never, ever ordain a 19-year-old. I, I don't know what my church was thinking. Uh, and I can say, hands down, the most common question I've been asked over the years is some version of the question, how can I know God's will for my life? It's an honest question, But it reveals a really big misconception that most of us have about God. You see, most of us see the will of God as a corn maze with one correct path and a bunch of dead ends. Uh, Jerry Setzer, he helps to make the correction of this misconception in his book, The Will of God as a Way of Life. And here's what he says. He says, conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway that we must follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he's laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover the pathway, God's plan for our lives. We must discover which of the many pathways we could follow, of the many pathways we could follow, which one is the one we should follow? The one God has planned for us. If and when you make this right choice, we receive God's favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and we succeed in life. But if we choose, uh, and if we choose the right path, we will experience his blessings and we'll achieve success and happiness. If we choose rightly, we'll experience his blessings and we'll achieve success and happiness. But if we choose the wrong path, we may lose our way. We may miss God's will for our lives and remain lost forever in this incomprehensible maze. That summarizes maybe what some of us think about the will of God. And it's a really common understanding. I think it's the understanding that's behind the question, what's God's will for my life? How do I know what God's will for my life is? So if God's will isn't a cosmic corn maze... According to the Bible, what is it? Well, fortunately, 
Uh, God's word has a lot to say about God's will, and that's some of why it's so confusing, because the Bible talks about God's will a lot and in many different ways. And when we read about what God, when we read what God has revealed to us in his word about his will, we find that there are at least three different ideas that are described in the Bible as God's will. This is what makes it confusing. So hang with me for a minute. There are at least three different uh, ideas, separate ideas in the Bible that are described with the biblical language, God's will. And I want to detangle those a little bit for us. So like I said, God's word has a lot to say about his will. There are at least three different ways to interpret or understand the phrase God's will in the Bible. And those ideas, though related to one another, are pretty dramatically different from one another too. So it's uh, in an effort to help you or the friend that you're asking for uh, be released from the fear of getting eternally lost inside of this corn maze of figuring out God's will, or even worse, getting to the end of your life and finding that you went the wrong, on the wrong path the whole time. I'd like, to, I'd like to untangle a whole bunch of biblical ideas and put them into three really simple categories for us, the way God talks to us about his will. And these three categories, the first one is, category one is God's decree. So sometimes we see the Bible describe God's will and what it means is God's decree. The reality, the decree is the reality that an all-knowing, that's omniscient, sometimes you've heard that theological term, the omniscient, all-knowing, and all-powerful, all-omnipotent God that, that for that God, everything, everything that happens from the roll of the dice to the circuits of the stars in the heavens to the rise of presidents to the death of Jesus on the cross to the shirt that you chose today, everything, everything, everything is decreed by God. This is a biblical reality. Everything is decreed by God. You cannot get away from this idea scripturally. It doesn't totally make sense to us. We don't know anyone who's all-knowing. We don't know anyone who's all-powerful, hold God. So it's hard for us to comprehend or understand this, but this is what the Bible teaches us about God. And there's no way to get around it. It is so plainly stated so many places in the Bible. There is no way you can be a biblical Christian and not embrace or believe that God decrees everything. Everything that happens. God is a micromanager. He knows every detail of our lives. He ordained and decreed every detail of our lives. It's not just the big things, <clears throat> but it's the little things too. So when God tells us, like in Ephesians chapter 1, when he tells us God works all things according to the counsel of his will, the all things there means all things, everything. And so he works everything according to his will, what he decrees. He has in mind the person we will uh, marry or we have married, big things like that. And he has in mind the little things like the shoes you're wearing today. God decrees and ordains all things. And in case we think maybe there are some things that are so small that God doesn't decree them or ordain them, Jesus clarified for us it's everything when he said, uh, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Jesus goes to this length to say to you and me, he knows and decrees everything that happens. So sometimes when we read about God's will in the Bible, this is what we're talking about. The decree of God that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and there is nothing that is outside of the realm of his knowledge or the scope of his power. Job recognized this. You remember the biblical character Job. He went through all these terrible things in his life. And after having gone through affliction and personal suffering, God's servant Job concluded, this is in Job 42, that I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's what Job says after all of the calamity has come upon him. He looks back on his life and he says, I know, God, that none of your purposes can be thwarted. You see, sometimes in hindsight, it's much easier to see what it is that God has been doing. We can see the purpose in our difficulty and distress and suffering that we can't see on the front end. So this first category is that God decrees. His will is His decree. Sometimes when we read about God's will in the Bible, we're reading about the reality that God is fully aware and He's in full control of every single thing that ever happens to you or me or anyone else on the planet. So that's the first category, God's decree. Sometimes when we read in the Bible, God's will, it's talking about that. But sometimes when we read in the Bible, God's will, it's talking about God's desire. So not his decree, but his desire. <clears throat> We're reading about God's desire for us at other times. His preference for the way we live. The principles or rules or precepts that he gives to us. The ones that he expects us to abide by and live by as his creation. So he created us, right? You and I were made by God. We were made in his image. And as our creator, he is also our owner. Because when you create something, you own it. And he created us and he owns us. And he has given us a, a way that he wants us to function and live. These principles or precepts or rules are God's desire for us. Now, unlike his decrees that we just talked about, these desires are not imposed upon us. He does not require them of us. He does not force us to abide by them. They are his desires for us. He expresses them to us, but he does not force us to abide by them. This is an important distinction if you're going to understand God's will, because you can't lump these two things into the same category. His decrees will come to pass. His desires will not necessarily come to pass. You say, that doesn't even make sense. We'll get there. Hold on with me for just a minute. The principles or rules in which he governs us, these are his desires for us. Let, let me give you an example of the kind of biblical language, the will of God in, in, in God's desire. Think of John, 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. 
And the world is passing away with all of its desires. But whosoever does the will of God, that's whoever does God's desire, abides forever. So what this passage and many, many, many others like it teach us is that God has a preferred way for us to live, a desired way for us to live, but we are not bound to that way. So the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whosoever does the will of God leaves us to understand that it's possible to not do the will of God. This is why the corn maze idea makes sense to us. Because we know that we can choose a right and a wrong. And when we mix that up with God's divine decree, the reality that all things will happen according to his plan and purpose, we get a little confused. So don't mix those two things up. God decrees. He knows what will happen. He has the power to change it. He decrees things, but he also desires things. But the things that he desires, he does not mandate. He gives us the ability to make decisions. That's why as humans, we are, con- we are, we are uh, culpable for our own decisions. Whosoever does the will of God is what the passage says in 1 John. Whoever does the will of God. It, it's phrases like this one that lead us to the misunderstanding that the will of God can be like a corn maze or a right and wrong choice. But... Uh, That can't be right because we know that God has decreed all things and absolutely no decision that I make will ever outmaneuver a sovereign God. So I can't make a decision that's going to escape the sovereignty of God. I can't make a plan or a choice that's going to thwart God's ultimate intentions in the world and in my life. It it wouldn't make sense if, if we could do that because... How can an all-knowing God, we know God's all-knowing, how can an all-knowing God be surprised by my choices? He can't be. How can an all-powerful God be overcome by my decisions? He can't be. Here's the key to understanding the distinction between these two things. Not all of our choices are aligned with God's desire, but every choice that you make is aligned with His decree. Not all of your choices will align with his desire, but every choice you make will align with his decrees. Consider Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. It lets us know, plain and simple, there are some people who will not do the will of my Father. And they will not enter into my kingdom. And that choice is not on God, but on man. So we have God's decree, God's desire, but we also, thirdly and lastly, have man's direction. And this is what we always want answers to. The decree we accept, the desire we know about those, we've read about them, but man's direction is really what we want from God. That's the info we want to get from God. That's what we're asking when we say, God, I want to know your will for my life. Or we use a phrase like, I want to be right in the center of your will. As if it's possible to be left of center in God's will. It's not. There is no way to be outside of God's will because God has decreed everything that will happen. This is the, this is the Christianity you signed up for. 
This is what the Bible teaches us about how God functions and operates. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. And I would submit to you, if you don't like that about God, I would submit to you, what kind of God would you prefer to follow? One who has not the power to decree all things? One who doesn't know everything? One who doesn't have the power to change? You see, we want, uh, we want directional answers, though. And so this Category 3 is about direction. So sometimes in the Bible, when we read about the will of God, really what we're getting at is about man's decision-making or man's direction. You know the word decision is uh, derived from a Latin word that means to cut off. And so uh, to make a decision is to, make a, uh, to step away from other things. And so the Bible's full of examples of people committed to serving God but not sure exactly what to do next. Kind of like us, right? I mean, we're committed to serving God. We love God. We want to please God. But the truth is, we don't know which way to go next. And the good news is, the Bible is chock full of people like that. I mean, we don't see a bunch of characters in the Bible who don't know what to do, pray to be revealed the will of God, and then know what to do and go do it. That's not how it works. We got all these confused characters that don't know what to do. We just went through the book of Esther, right? Where Esther says, eh, if I perish, I perish. Right? I mean, we don't know. And the Bible's full of people like this because this is real. This is what life's really like. We don't know. And anybody who tells you under the guise of a pastoral preaching or, or Christian ministry that you can pray for God's will to be revealed to you and in some, uh, some cosmic way or some mysterious way it will be shown to you, I think is a person who has a misunderstanding of the will of God. I have some friends that were praying about where to go and start a new church and they were wrestling with this and they had this idea that there was this one perfect place, this one spot in the world that God had decreed for them to go plant a church. And they were praying, and the woman's a school teacher, and she was at school one day, and she put her pencil in the pencil sharpener and looked down, and it said Boston. And she said, Eureka. That's it. We're going to Boston. That's the place. And they went to Boston. They tried to plant a church, and they labored for five years there, and they weren't able to get it off the ground, and they came back home distraught and devastated. What happened? Did God fail? Did they miss God's will? Did they misread it? That is terrible to be under the bondage of that kind of mentality about how God operates with us. This is not the way a loving God would operate, to leave us in the dark, to grope around, to feel for what he might want for us, to find this special, perfect little direction. You know, I'm, I'm interacting with my kids. They're getting to the age where, where uh, we're starting to look toward and think about their careers and their marriages and things like that. And where I want them to know, like, this idea that there's like a soulmate for you, that's a weird idea. Stop, stop thinking about that idea. That's an idea that, that pop culture has given us. You choose somebody to love and you love them in, in the Bible's way. That's, that's how we find our soulmate. Our soulmate is the one we choose. And, and so the Bible's full of these examples of people serving God but not knowing what to do next. People who take the principles and the precepts of God under the advisement of God's Word and they make decisions about how to proceed. 
What we don't find in the Bible is these examples of people that are paralyzed with fear and indecision about making a choice. And, and to, to be honest, there are a lot more choices available to us now in this life, in this world, than were, were available to the original hearers of these teachings. I mean, we have so many choices, right? I mean, just an incredible amount of choices. And those choices can be paralyzing. I think, um, you know, when I grew up, people asking me the question, what are you going to do when you grow up? It felt like an exciting question. I felt like I had answers and ideas. But now I feel like our kids have so many options. Like they could literally do anything they want. I mean, they're not, they're not bound by having to do what their dad does or having to do, you know, anything. They can literally choose anything. And all those choices, I feel like, paralyzes us in some way. So we don't find in the, in the Bible examples of people who, uh, who um, don't, know what to do, don't know God's will, uh, and so they're, they're groping around for it, and they're looking for it, they're searching for it. We just finished working through Esther, like I mentioned, a fantastic example, faced with a tough decision, the decision to remain silent and safe, or to go into a very dangerous situation to save her people. And I think the modern uh, American Christian, the average modern American Christian looking at the, the, the will of God like a corn maze might, might get to a decision like Esther faced and might ask the question, God, what's your will for my life? And might just stand still until, until she has some kind of thing to influence her, to tell her which way to go. But, but it's not a corn maze. And we believe that doing, uh, and we believe that doing God's will would never... Uh, include danger or risk or suffering or pain, but the truth is doing God's will often includes those things. You imagine if we were to ask God, what is your will for my life, and he were to actually tell us? I mean, it would, in most of our cases, it would really, really frighten us. I was thinking about this this week because I, I had a meeting. We're going to uh, Iceland, and one of the people that was going to Iceland with, with us was in the Iceland, uh, the meeting, the team meeting we had a couple, uh, about a week ago, and, and, uh, and we have another meeting this afternoon, and, and I got a message from her mom. She can't be there because she, she got into a terrible accident, and, and she's in ICU, and she's got the threat of her life. And, and she had no idea that that was going to happen in her life. And it was, it was sudden, and it was unexpected, but it is according to what we know about God. It is in line with the purposes of God in this world. It is part of his divine decree. So we just finished working through the book of Esther and we see that in her life, personified in her life. She, Esther, she, uh, she decided that even though there would be danger or risk or suffering or pain, she concluded that no matter what happened, she would stand before the king. She need not be concerned because God is good and nothing happens apart from his good decrees. And that's enough. And, and that's what gave her the boldness to say, if I perish, I perish. It wasn't because she didn't care if she died or not. It was because she trusted God. What Scripture shows us are examples of uncertain people exercising bold faith and trusting the goodness of God, the goodness of God's outcomes in our lives. Uh, here's an example from the life of the Apostle Paul. It says they came to Ephesus. This is in Acts 18. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. Uh, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period of time, he declined. But on, uh, on uh, uh, taking to leave, he said to them, I'll return to you if God wills it. And he set sail from there to Ephesus. 
Now, the Apostle Paul's answer to them when they, when they asked him to stay longer was, I'll return if it's God's will. Which seems like a non-answer to me. I don't know about you. It just feels like it's not a very substantive answer. He said, I'll return to you if God wills. In essence, Paul's saying to them, the only way we can be sure if God, it's God's will for me to come back here is to wait and see if it happens. <laughs> the only way you can be sure about God's will is to wait and see what happens. Because what happens is God's will. It is his decree. And, uh, and so this, is, this isn't how most of us function. We stand on the threshold of a decision. We want God to tell us what his decrees are before we make the decision. So that we can choose if we want to trust him or not. Hear me again. We stand on the threshold of a decision. And we want God to tell us what his decrees are before the decision is made. So that we can decide if we want to trust him or not in what we're going into. We can, so we can decide if we want to follow the path he's laid out for us. Not comprehending that it's not now, nor has it ever been, God's aim to comfort us or secure us through the knowledge of the future. This is not how God operates with us, if you haven't noticed. He doesn't comfort us or secure us through knowledge of the future. Therefore, quit asking God what His will is for your life. He's not going to tell you. We stand on the threshold of a decision. We want the answer now. It's not that God doesn't have the knowledge of the future. It's that he has decided that you and me don't need that knowledge. God does know the future. And he's decided that it's not for us to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 is such a, a clear uh, description of this reality. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Basically what the Bible's telling us is there are some things God's told us and those are ours. We should hold on to those for dear life. And there are some things that are secret and they're for God alone and we should, we should, uh, we should not hold on to those. So the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all of the works, words of the law. So God has secret things and he has revealed things. There are things he wants us to know and there are things he doesn't want us to know. And in our lives, for you and me, the things he wants us to know are in his word. And the things that he doesn't want us to know, he's held back from us. He calls them secret things. That's what the secret things are, right? Secret things are hidden. We don't know those things. We can't know those things. God has chosen not to reveal them to you. It was an active decision. He is an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God. He could reveal those things to you. He's chosen not to reveal those things to you. So stop praying. God, what's your will for my life? Show me your will for my life. Show me your decree. He's not going to show you the specifics of his decree. It's secret. It's a secret for him alone. It doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. What does belong to you, though, is what he has revealed to you. And what he has revealed to you is very good. And to look at the very good thing he has revealed to you and refuse to move because he hasn't revealed all you want or the level of detail that you want 
is for us to say, God, say to God, we do not trust him. Imagine with me that I went home this afternoon and I said to my family, I'm going to take you guys on a fantastic summer vacation. This summer. Well, my kids, they would likely start asking me questions. They would ask things like, where are we going? When are we going? What are we going to do on this fantastic vacation you say we're going on? I'd say to them, all I can tell you is we're going to have a blast. So pack your bathing suit, pack your sunscreen, and that's it. That's all I'm going to tell you. Now, based on, on what they know about me, they'd start packing, but they'd be very skeptical. You know, they, they would start packing, but imagine for me, with me for just one moment that Moses, my youngest, my nine-year-old, he came to me and he said, Dad, I, I need to know what you have planned before I can start packing. I'm not going to go anywhere with you until you tell me what we're doing. This is a version of what we do when we obsess over knowledge that doesn't belong to us. It's not your knowledge. It's God's knowledge. He has revealed some things to us, and he has kept some of them in secret. And all of his purposes and plans are good. All those things together make a beautiful reality. And the thing you want, you don't really want. Trust me, you don't really want to know all that's in front of you because the reality is what's in front of us and in the center of God's will for many of us is not pleasant but has a pleasant outcome for those who labor with God. What we're actually saying to God when we, when we act this way, what we're actually saying to him is God we don't trust you enough to believe that your plans for us are good. We want to hear them first, then we'll decide if they're good. Lord, tell me what you want to do so I can be sure nothing bad's going to happen to me. It's a really cowardly prayer, isn't it? Tell me what you're going to do, good, good Father, so that I can look at your determinations and your decisions and scrutinize them through the grid of my own experiences. It sounds so foolish when we say it like that. But that's what it is. That's what we're saying. What we're saying to God is we don't trust you enough to believe your plans for us are good. Tell us so that nothing bad will happen to us. The New Testament writer and the half-brother of Jesus, James, he instructs us in this way about this subject. He says, come now, all of you who say today or tomorrow I'll go into such a town and I'll spend a year there and I'll make a trade there and I'll make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. I love that. James is like, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. This is the, the wisdom coming out, right? And, and some of us who have maybe been around the block a little bit, we're quick to say, you don't know what tomorrow will bring because we set out with ambitions too at one point in our life. We thought everything was going to go great and then it didn't. But somehow... In the messiness of it all, God used it for our good and our sanctification, or he is using it yet to be revealed. I love Mike Tyson's famous quote. He says, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. What we're saying to God when we, 
when we scrutinize His plan, when we want to know all the details, is that we do not trust Him. They say, like James, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to do that. James says back, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And then if we live, we'll do this or we'll do that. James is saying, you don't even know if you're going to be alive. And it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, James tells us, is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. See, he goes back to those precepts, those principles. He calls them the right thing. We know the principles and precepts. God's given us those. He revealed them to us. We just want the details of how they're going to manifest themselves in our life. And I know it's trite, and I know it's cliche, but there's something so much better than knowing what the future holds, and it's knowing who holds the future. That is better than knowing what the future holds. God has not chosen to reveal the specifics of your future to you, and he's not likely to tell you specifically who to marry, where to go to school, what car to buy, the things we really do want to know. He's not likely to tell us those things. But what we do know, what God has chosen to reveal or uncover to you and I, what he's chosen to reveal about our future is really better than any of those specific things. Here's what he's revealed to us about our future. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we don't know the details. We don't know how God will work good in our life. We only know that he will work good in our life. Don't let those words go in one ear and out the other. What God has revealed to us is the big picture. He revealed to us the big idea that what he's doing in our life, even though it's an adventure to us, we can't see it playing all out. What he has revealed to us is that it's going to be okay in the end. See, he gave us the one thing that could relieve our anxiety, the knowledge that it will all work out okay in the future. And he withheld from us the things that if we knew would create great anxiety. You see, God has been so merciful to us in not telling us what the future holds. What God has revealed to us, what he has declassified is the fact that if you and I love him and if we obey him, everything will work out for our good. There is no better news than that. So God's decree is his will. God's desire is his will. But what we're thinking about when we're talking about his will is we're talking about man's direction. You see, God is sovereign over even your desires. This is something we don't think about very much, but it's very true. What is the extent of God's sovereign hand? Does it extend in the physical universe? Can he move objects around at his will? Can he create circumstances at his will? Can he affect our minds and our hearts? Does he have any sovereignty or control over our desires? The answer to all of those things is a resounding, yes, he does. So even your desires are, are blown about by the winds of God's decree. You think you want something, but that want was put in you by someone. 
And that someone put that one in you to accomplish his purposes in the world and in your life. You see, God's sovereign even over our desires, our preferences, our persuasions, our passions. They are all intricately woven into the fabric of what we call God's will in the world. You can't know God's decrees, but you can, you can know his desires. Thinking about the, the, the will of God in those terms that we were just talking about. We cannot know his decrees. Those things are hidden from us, remember. But we can know his desires. Those things are revealed to us, remember. They're revealed to us. We can know his decrees. You can know what he desires. And you can know that he controls your desires. And those desires will lead you to decisions that will inevitably carry out his decrees. Not one of your decisions will adjust the decree of God even by one fraction of a degree. Maybe you've read the Psalm 37.4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That one along with many other verses like it in the scripture have always been a little confusing to me. So all i got to do is make myself happy in God, and then he'll give me whatever I want. Sounds good. Doesn't sound true. Sounds good. Because my, my wanter is big. Like, i got a lot of things I want. I can, I can create all kinds of things that I want. And so he's going to give them all to me if I'm just happy in him. I can be happy in him. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't seem consistent with what I know about God and my experience in the world. I just never quite could understand it until, Eureka, I understood. It's not delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you the things you want. It's delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you desires. He will give you new desires. He will give you, he will implant in you the desires of your heart. See, God is sovereign even over our desires. That's a dramatically different meaning, isn't it? I mean, if we think about that verse in those two ways, those two types of interpretations, one makes sense theologically and one does not at all. See, God gives us desires. He implants new desires in us. And that's my experience too. It's consistent with my experience. I don't know about yours, but when I met Jesus, all of a sudden... Things were rearranged in my life, and I wanted things I didn't want before, and I hated things that I didn't hate before. This is how God has worked in me. He's shuffled around all my desires to make me a different kind of person. I think the church father, St. Augustine, most clearly and succinctly summarized what the Bible teaches on this whole subject when he said it simply like this. He said, love God and do as you wish. Love God and do as you wish. And that is such a simple rule to live by. Because it's a, it's a filter. It's a filter that I can, I can take every decision through. I can pass every decision through. Is this decision an act of love toward God? Yes or no? That's usually pretty clear. Is this decision in line with my own desires? See, we've, we've taught ourselves that our desires are evil and every desire we have is bad and we need to do the will of God, not our desires. But that is discounting that God has any sovereignty over our desires and he, do, he does have control over our desires. And so when St. Augustine tells us to love God and do as we wish, he's saying, obey your desires in loving God 
and you will do the will of God. That should be the filter through which we allow decisions to pass. Is this in line with loving obedience to God and is it what I desire to do? So your desires are not evil. They're not to be suspect in so much as they are in accordance with loving God. So like a good software upgrade, I want to give you today, I want to upgrade your outdated corn maze illustration that you might have in your head. You know, if you're thinking about the corn maze sort of way of of wandering through life to discern God's will, I'd like you to, to put that one in the trash can on your desktop and open this new illustration that will be a lot better in a more biblical way of viewing God's will in our lives. And it's the illustration of a train. A train. So the train is God's decree. Moving in a direction along tracks, the train is going to get from one station to the next. The passengers don't have control. This is God's decree. It is happening. And like Amtrak, the train company has rules. And those rules are God's desires. They're like, stay in the seat. Don't jump out the window. You know, like basic things. Don't bring any weapons on the train. Don't stick your head out of the window. The passengers can choose to obey or disobey these rules, but if they disobey, there will be consequences to disobedience. And then lastly, there's the the rider's conduct or the personal conduct. And that's our direction, man's direction. Inside that train going to that station we are inevitably going to, with the rules that have been given to us, we have decisions to make. Decisions to read a book, or to watch a movie, or to look out the window, or to sleep, or to talk to someone sitting next to us. You can do whatever you want, as long as you don't break the rules. And so, I want to submit this to you as not perfect, but a better illustration for how to think about the will of God. God's purposes will come about in your life. You cannot thwart them. But, you will make decisions inside of that will that are in accordance with his desires for your life or that are out of sync with his desires for your life. You will make personal conduct decisions. You will make decisions about the way you live that will, will dictate what your relationship with God is like. The Bible clearly affirms these two things, these two wills. It clearly affirms that God is sovereign over all things and it clearly affirms that man is responsible for his own actions. Those two things are true according to the Bible. And even though we have trouble reconciling how those two things work together, uh, they are both true. They are both affirmed by Scripture. So my friends, the Gospel uh, really is good news for us today. It's good news because God's will is not a riddle to be solved. It's uh, it's not a, a, a mystery that we have to figure out. And you can't mess it up because God's good purposes will prevail in this world. You can search for God's will if you want, but according to the Bible, you aren't going to find it. You are, or, I'm sorry, according to God's will, you are going to find it, whether you search for it or not. And there is one, one piece of God's will that is ultra clear and really relevant to you and I here today. There's a piece of God's will that is true for all of us. And 2 Peter 3.9 describes it really 
really nicely. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some people count slowness. So we look at the Lord and we say, well, he hasn't, he hasn't returned. He hasn't, he hasn't uh, delivered me yet in whatever way I need to be delivered. The Lord is not slow to fulfill the promises that he's made to us, according to Second Peter. Instead, you shouldn't see it as slowness or slothfulness. You should see it as patience. He's patient toward you. Why is he patient toward you? Because he is not willing that any would perish, but that all of us would reach repentance. See, his will is that all of us reach repentance. It's his desired will, but we have personal responsibility for the decisions we make in this life. And so there are individuals who are here today, you've come for a variety of reasons, maybe because you really wanted to be here to understand God and His Word, maybe because you're trying to appease a family member or friend, but you're here today, and the truth is that the Lord has been slow to punish you for your disobedience toward Him because He is patient with you. And He's not willing that you would perish, but that He wants you to repent, and He is offering to you and to each one of us today the opportunity to to surrender ourselves to the rules and laws that he's laid out for us in this life. And so if you are here today and you have said no to God over and over in your life, you have rebelled against his purposes and his, his desires in your life, you are working against something that you cannot thwart. And I would ask you, I would beg you to repent today. He is patient, waiting toward you, not wishing for you to perish, but wishing for you to repent. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Your word adjusts our thinking all day. Each day we're interacting with, with people in this world that, that teach us ideas of this world. And when we come to your word, we see that there is such a conflict between the ways of this world and the teaching of your word. So God, Sometimes when I'm encountering one of those conflicts, I don't know how to look at it. I don't know if I should trust the world or trust the Word, but God, would you give me faith to trust in you? The Scripture teaches us that even the faith to believe in you comes from you. And so God, would you give us faith to believe and obey? Lord Jesus, for the individuals who are here today and and have said no to you over and over, who do not acknowledge your work in creation, nor do they acknowledge they are your creation. God, would you show us all today, would you reveal yourself to us that you are God? And would you cause our hearts to submit to you? We ask. And for the individuals here today who are struggling with all kinds of directional decisions and desperately desire for you to show them the way, God, would you give them confidence that your purposes in their lives are good? God, would you relieve anxiety by the teaching from your word today that we would no longer toil or be shackled or concerned with what will happen tomorrow, but in everything, trust in you and your good purposes in our life. And we say with Esther, if we perish, we perish, knowing that we are in your hands and that is a safe place to be. God, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask you to give us Uh, trust in you and in your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.